New Zealand science. That's right, for Anzac Day we've got all the Aussie New Zealand scientists and their research coming up for you today, right here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday, right here on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM. Thanks very much to Irish Voice, who filled the hour before us with some fantastic Irish music. But now it's time to get a little bit uh, more engaged with the brain and switch it on for the Sunday, because we've got an hour's worth of science coming up for you. Uh, My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with me this morning. And joining me in the studio today is the lovely Jess. Good morning, Jess. Good morning, Broderick, and good morning, Canberra. (laughs) It's fantastic to have you in. Your first time on Fuzzy Logic, Jess. Very exciting. Uh, But we've got a whole lot of stuff lined up for today, a whole lot of Aussie and New Zealand inventions. Um, But before we jump too far into that, I thought I'd um, talk a little bit about a topic we talked about last week on Fuzzy Logic, because, of course, last week was Easter, Uh, and so Alice and I on the show last week got very into chocolate and uh, rabbits and other strange things that had something to do with Easter, rather tenuous at times. But uh, <laughs> this week I found in my research a story of some research from CSIRO uh, who have done some uh, work with uh, 3D mastication modelling, uh, which is their chewing, their virtual mouth uh, that's... Uh, showing how we can chew and the hope is that um, by analysing the way we chew things we can be a little bit healthier when we have our easter eggs in the chocolatey future Um, in the (laughs) chocolatey so what they're doing is um, they've developed this uh, 3D dynamic virtual mouth uh, that can provide insight for developing healthier foods. Uh, so normally, obviously, in polite company, you can't see in someone's mouth while they're eating and uh, you can't really see the chewing process happening. Uh, but what they're doing at CSIRO is using a cutting-edge technology called smooth particle hydrodynamics and developing a virtual mouth based around real data about the physics of chewing. So it looks at how a particular food breaks down and how flavours released in the mouth. Uh, and shows the distribution and interaction of the different components of foods such as salt and sugar and fat. So through the technology they can look at how the food works on the microscopic level in the mouth, uh, which is really interesting because it helps uh, scientists develop uh, foods uh, lower in salt, sugar and fat without actually changing the taste because they know how those chemicals are going to interact in the mouth and uh, hopefully this will be better for us. because, you know, it's going to tie into what food scientists do and uh, how a complex food uh, product in our mouth, you know, breaks down as we chew it. And uh, so hopefully, you know, it's going to help us develop some 
more uh, healthier Easter eggs, but still tasting just as sweet and just as yummy. Sounds like a much healthier way to enjoy Easter for your body. I think so. I think, uh, you know, the more we can have healthy chocolate, the better, because the more we can eat chocolate, the better it is. Definitely. Well, uh, yeah. In theory. In theory. Um, <laughs> anyway, enough of chocolate. I just thought I'd throw that one in from last week uh, so we could uh, have a look at some more chocolate research. But today, this is, uh, of course, we had Anzac Day on Friday. Did you go down to the Dord service, Jess? Yeah, definitely. It was my first um, first time in Canberra at the National national service and it was amazing yeah so. there's so many people there yeah. and considering it's you know five o'clock in the morning it's it's pretty impressive that there's that many people about um but yeah and even uh, the royals made made the the trip along which was a surprise um but mind you i couldn't really see them in the crowd it was no. a bit too dark i saw them up on the big screen yeah. but not in person so no. and i'm pretty sure baby george would have still been in bed i would imagine. yes yeah i think so um but uh, the the interesting thing, so of course, yeah, Friday was Anzac Day, so we decided we might do an Anzac-based show here on Fuzzy Logic, talking about Australia and New Zealand scientists. And uh, for interest, uh, this year in the Anzac Day march has been the first time defence scientists have been able to march in the Anzac Day parade. Uh, so they've... Uh, uh, put the offer out to all defence scientists who work for the Defence Science and Technology Organisation, or DSTO, who've actually served on overseas deployments. Um, and, and so they can march in the parade wearing their uh, Australian Operational Service Medal, uh, which they receive for operational service. Uh, so they were marching this year for the first time in Adelaide and Melbourne under the Defence Civilians Operational Services banner. Uh, so that's a, a fantastic thing, I think, that we've actually got... Um, scientists marching in the Anzac Day Parade. Uh, since the Vietnam War, the, the Defence Force has regularly called on uh, DSTO to deploy scientists to assist in military campaigns, because uh, obviously the military is becoming more technology-driven and very complex. Uh, and since 2001, DSTO has deployed 209 scientists and operations analysts on ADF operations in the Middle East, the Solomon Islands and East Timor. Uh, and tasks that they perform include decision support to commanders, advising on force protection issues, and providing science and technology assessments. So some fantastic stuff. So I don't know whether many people realise that we actually had scientists out in the field of battle um, serving out there as uh, part of the Australian Army Corps, uh, but they are, and they were marching for the first time this year in the Anzac Day Parade. Uh, so, yeah, we thought that was a perfectly good reason to start talking about some Australian-New Zealand science. And uh, for that reason, uh, we've got a whole lot of uh, research from from this country and across the divide uh, over the Tasman. And, uh, Jess, uh, you've been putting together a big list of inventions from both Australia and New Zealand. Um, and do you want to kick us off with a few inventions uh, today? What area are we going to look at in the inventions to start with? So I think we might kick off by having a look at aviation and, and um, transport-related inventions. Okay, cool. Um, so I might start off with probably one of the most, I guess, well-known, um, which is the black box flight recorder. So this was actually in the 1950s. There was a number of um, aeroplanes that were, were crashing and engineers couldn't really find a cause. Um, and it was Dr David Warren who actually created the very first black box flight recorder. So this is a device that records voices from the cockpit as well as the flight's data. So these were um, made as durable boxes, um, 
hoping to replay the final moments before a plane crash and revealing to, to everyone what went wrong and what was the cause. Um, interestingly, though, they weren't actually black for <laughs> a while. They started out being painted as black. Yeah. Um, and there's kind of, I guess, a bit of contention as to why it's known as a black box, whether it's because it started out as black or whether it's because of the secrets it, it holds. Oh, the evil. yes, okay. Yes. Um, but they're actually bright orange because they decided once planes crashed and they were looking for this little box that held all the secrets of why the plane crashed that they probably needed to be a brighter colour than black. So they made that, it... That does make sense <laughs> to have it as orange. Definitely. And so, yeah. in fact, now they send out like a, a radio signal or something, I think, because I've been hearing a lot about that in the MH370 crash um, where they've been investigating that overseas. They're still trying to find that black box because it does play such an important role in uh, what's actually going on and, and trying to work out what happened to that plane. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. So uh, it's a fantastic Aussie invention that's still being thoroughly well used today. Yeah. And so I guess sticking with the... Um with the airplane, aircraft kind of way. Yeah. Um, in 1965, Jack Grant of Qantas actually invented the first inflatable escape slide and raft for airplanes. So they're now mandatory safety equipment on all major airlines. So that's nice. quite exciting, a nice yeah. way to get out after the plane. So not only do they know what happens to the plane when it crashes, you can also escape if you're stuck inside, <laughs> which awesome. is pretty important. I like important. that it's been invented by someone from Qantas, too, who haven't had to use those sorts of things before. Yeah. Because they haven't had the they hadn't crashed, yeah. But still, yeah, awesome stuff. Quite cool. Um, and then moving along, I guess, to to cars. In Australia was actually the first place to invent the race cam. So in 1979, Channel 7 introduced live television broadcasting from racing cars, which allowed viewers to watch the race from the driver's perspective, which... In 1979? 1979. So today the race cam's been adapted to fit um, for other sporting events, such as snow skiing and basketball and cricket. But, yeah, it was initially developed... I think um, maybe along Bathurst, that kind yeah. of because Australia's quite into. Yeah, motorsports. although I can't imagine like back in the, that time, I feel like uh, cameras would have been a lot bigger than they are now. <laughs> so yeah. when they were mounting a giant, giant camera on top of the uh, car, or whether they had a miniature version that they were going with, yeah. Yeah, well, technology's <laughs> definitely improved these days, but, um, <laughs> and I think um, keeping with the Australian part of the theme, I think that. Um, moving, so we started out with planes, and then we moved on to um, cars, and then from there we can head to boats. Yeah. And I think as soon as I say boats, a lot of people would click with the winged keel that uh, we saw for the America's Cup. That's right, a big, big secret that won us yes, the America's, America's Cup. Cup. Yeah. After oh, what was it? A hundred and oh, forty-three years or something like that. Something ridiculous. Something, yeah. Yeah. We hadn't won for a very very long time and then yeah surprisingly lifted up wings keel in the middle of the i think it was the middle of the morning i'm not sure it was slightly before i was born but yeah (laughs) just a little bit but yeah on the australia two boat so and then so from sea to to land i guess new zealand have claimed that they've invented jogging jogging (laughs) how do you invent jogging well apparently running coach arthur lidded developed a training technique for runners um, that the world now calls jogging. So it helped win the Olympic gold medals for his protégés Peter Snell and Murray Halberg in the 1960 Rome Olympics. Right. So, I, I still don't quite see how how you invent jogging because it's um, it's just running slower, isn't it? <laughs> I feel, yeah, I feel like 
being a true blue Aussie, I feel like New Zealand's cr- clutching a little at straws. Uh, yeah. Um, but if they want to claim it, go for it, I sure. think. Sure, sure. So heading straight from jogging into flying of a different kind, yeah. um, jetpack. The jetpack was also claimed to be invented by New Zealand. Oh, yes, the Martin jetpack. Yeah, Actually, that's Martin. pretty amazing because there's, there's a couple of uh, <coughs> excuse me, jetpacks out on the market at the moment. And one of them kind of relies on water, and, you know, you suck water in and then push water back down. So you have to be on a lake or something like that, but you can kind of hover. But the Martin jetpack actually just does it with air. Uh, and it's it's it only costs $100,000. Like, well, I, only. I, I don't, <laughs> Who I, doesn't have that cash just lying around? Let's I, all get jetpacks. Yeah, well, we could. Um, but, you know, I remember uh, seeing it for the first time and thinking... Um, just on YouTube, that is, but just thinking, you know, 100000 like, you can buy a decent luxury car for $100,000, so why wouldn't you have a jetpack? Um, I guess the only problem is the range of the jetpack, because I think you can only do about 100 Ks. Yeah, it, uh, says, it says that it's for about half an hour in the air. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's improved a little with technology. Yeah, it still wouldn't get you very far, not, though. Maybe not quite as far as a luxury car. I think yeah. as awesome as a jetpack is, I would probably still go for <laughs> luxury car. Yeah, um, but, you know, just imagine arriving somewhere. Well, the other thing would be, I suppose, when you arrive somewhere, like, you have car parks, but I don't quite know how you park a jetpack, because um, it's quite a large thing with, you know, big fans and that sort of thing on there, and, uh, yeah, that would be interesting to park. Um so yeah, the guy who invented it, uh, Mr. Martin, I can't remember his first name. But Glenn Martin. Glenn Martin, thank you. Yeah. Um, he, he did a lot of the, the prototype testing uh, with his, his wife and his family <laughs> to try and get it working, get it all stabilised and going up nice and straight. Um, but now, yeah, if you have a look at uh, Martin Jetpack on the net, you can see some awesome clips of people just going around big indoor warehouses with the jetpack zooming about, which is kind of crazy, but cool. Well, I guess when you become an inventor, you really find out who your friends are and they're the ones who are willing to test what you're creating. (laughs) That's right. Oh, dear. Um, And then let's look at another form of, I guess, on land slash water, um, New Zealand invention, and that's absorbing. So this is um, was inspired by Kiwi brothers who were wanted to walk on water um, along with a few scientists, and so they created a zorb, which is a giant ball that spins down a hill up to about fifty k's an hour. Yeah, so it's one of those like giant see-through plastic ones. Yeah, which I think has a ball inside a ball, so you don't like smash too much on the outside. Is that right? Pretty much. It's kind yeah. of like there's an inner. It's almost like a donut but in three dimensions so if you can picture there's a hole in the middle where the people either get strapped in or nowadays you can do it in water so they just fill up the inside with water and then there's this big kind of space around the edge that's filled with air yeah and then the outside so it's actually they're actually um in a lot of places all over the world now there's some in australia up in queensland yeah um but yeah in rotorua it was initially invented in rotorua in new zealand because um, they're all about thrill-seeking and yeah. and crazy things around yeah. there. Yeah, I don't um, know whether it would be a legitimate form of transport of actually getting about inside one of those things. Maybe not, but it would be a lot of fun. I've actually it done it, and it's a lot yeah. of fun. Um, but, yeah, probably not the most efficient form because you can't really steer it or control no. it. But and it'd be good going downhill, but going back uphill is yeah. after work. No. I feel like it has a few limitations. Yeah. So Zorbing's probably the lowest on the list for forms of transport <laughs> compared to jetpack and luxury car. Yeah. Um, and then last but not least, another form of transport, but one that I don't think I'd like to take anywhere myself, is bungee jumping. 
which was invented by um, Daredevil AJ Hackett in New Zealand, and they actually have quite a few um, amazing bungee spots in New Zealand. Um, yeah, and that's probably one of the most famous Kiwi inventions of the modern world. Yeah, I don't know whether you'd... I suppose it is transport, isn't it? Because you go from up the top up to the down top to the, the bottom. bottom. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Well, and then they, back up and down and up yeah, and down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Although technically, like, he didn't invent it because there were all those those tribal people beforehand, and I'm trying to remember where they're from, that used to basically jump off heights with a vine attached to their leg. Yeah, but, that's... Um, you know bungee jumping slightly safer in that you have the bungee cord which is elastic so it actually stretches yeah. um, that's actually where they got the the initial idea for from was yeah. was from that but he was the first person who um opened the world's first commercial site in 1988 oh, okay. um a year after he illegally leapt from the eiffel tower in paris <laughs> so <laughs> yeah nice. i feel like there's a, a trend of scientists going out on a limb either with their family and friends or <laughs> with themselves to yeah. to get their inventions across so yeah well bungee core is pretty impressive because i know I've, I've seen um i haven't done it myself but my friends didn't as part of the um the certificate to say they did it they got a piece of old bungee cord to keep and it's like it's ridiculously thick elastic um and it's but it's not like one thick bit like it's lots of bits of elastic all wound together like rope yeah it's just amazing yeah and if you try and stretch like that little bit you just can't stretch it at all but but it's funny to see after people jump that they bounce up and down yeah, yeah yeah even though the cord's not yeah it's yeah it's also surprising to think that you're a supported by something that's just a few hundred strands of elastic kind of tied together. Yeah, you wouldn't want that thought running through your head just before you jump. No. <laughs> uh, all right, well, we've got plenty more Australian inventions and uh, Australian science coming up today. But for now, let's have a little break and we'll have some music. Six minutes to 12 right here on 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. And today on Fuzzy, we're talking Australia-New Zealand science. As uh, to tie into Anzac Day that was on Friday, we thought we'd keep the uh, Anzac spirit going and get into the Australia-New Zealand science. We've been talking about some of the transport inventions earlier, and we forgot the most important one, Jess, which is... The ute! Of course. In 1934, the ute was actually developed in Geelong, because it was... In, in Geelong. In Geelong, <laughs> yeah, because there was this... Um, there was a farmer, and his wife said, I need a car that I can get to church on Sunday, but the pig's to market on Monday. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure he said it exactly like that. Too. That's what his wife said. So, right. therefore, he developed the ute for her. So, oh, there you go. Just, uh, that, I find that even more interesting, that a man developed it for his wife. Because yeah. you call it a man's car now, if you're being... Uh, I mean, not that it is, but that's, that's what it's perceived as. <laughs> yeah, oh, very good. Very good. Well, actually, I... I'm, I'm quite impressed by the... I went to an um, uh, art installation outside of uh, Condoblin a, a few years ago, uh, which is near... Um, uh, not too far away from Deniloquin. <laughs> Get my tongue working. Deniloquin, where they had uh, have the Denny Ute Muster every year. Um, but outside of Condoblin, they have... Um, the Utes in a Panic, which are all these, uh, all the series of Holden Utes, uh, all painted up by different Australian artists with different things on them. And there's like one that's been painted up to look like Ned Kelly, uh, one's a bottle of Bundy rum, and then others have just been painted with like Australian scenery on them. Fantastic way of uh, putting. Making an Australian invention even more Australian, I reckon. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Represent. 
<laughs> anyway, let's move out of the transport world now and into the world of medicine because I think Australians have had a huge impact in the world of medicine and Kiwis as well. Yeah, in a lot of ways we've been um, quite on the forefront of, of a lot of medical inventions. Um, so probably the most recent one that a lot of people have heard about is um, Fiona, Professor Fiona Wood's spray-on skin. So she actually patented that in 1999. Um, so this involves taking a small patch of the patient's healthy skin and then culturing that in the lab to grow new skin cells. Um, and then these new skin cells are sprayed onto the patient's damaged skin. So yeah. To help with burn victims and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, burn victims, anything like yeah. that. So uh, I think she played a huge role in um, the Bali bombings uh, with her spray-on skin there, helping out those victims over there to, to recover much more quickly. Um, Most definitely. Yeah, because I think one of the biggest issues with... Um, burn victims is not the burn itself but the fact you've just exposed because your skin is actually such a protective organ for our body that when you get burnt you're just exposing so much of your inside and there's infections can just happen like that yeah um, well that's the i think there's more deaths related to to infections and in that because you've broken that barrier than there are with any other complications associated with that yeah so to get some spray on skin on and it just sounds like i mean it sounds like a, a strange product you buy from the two dollar store like you know come get some spray on skin and spray on you know, it just sounds bizarre but it, it, it's pretty impressive that it actually works and yeah, it does I, an amazing job yeah i think the difference is so they've been able to culture cells in the lab for years on end and there's lots of um research been done along those lines but the key is the application process the method that they use right um and that's what's really making the difference that it's so accessible and um yeah so not only can you take it places and it's available but um yeah it just reduces that recovery time and scarring which is awesome so there's another one which a lot of people would have heard of um and that's actually more recent that's in 2006 is professor ian fraser um up in queensland discovered how to create a vaccination for cervical cancer so a lot of people have heard of Gardasil, yeah. um, which is the vaccine to present certain types of human papillomavirus. So it's the second. So cervical cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in women, um, and the vaccination has huge implications for the prevention of cancer. So that's just awesome. It's going to, I think, revolutionise the yeah, future. That's right, and it's being taken all around the world too. Uh, I know there was a. Um, and I'm not going to remember, it was one of the countries in Southeast Asia that was implementing a, a mass vaccination program of that, and they actually had Professor Fraser over there to different uh, female groups, um, you know, trying to tell, tell them about the vaccine and why it's so important and what it will do to them. Yeah, um, I actually went to a seminar that he presented, and it was yeah. amazing just to see his, his passion and drive, and um, he has really good communication skills in articulating, um, I guess, on, on multiple levels, whether you're someone who's never heard of it before um, or someone who's been studying in a lab for, for 10 years, just having that range and that ability to, to communicate it. And, and he was saying that the, the main problem is, is getting it out to everyone overseas and trying to make it a worldwide thing, and that's yeah. what they're really focused on yeah. on now, which is awesome. That's so, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so keeping along the lines of, I guess, um, medical drugs and vaccines and things like that so back quite a while ago in 1939 um in australia a team of scientists purified penicillin from a special strain of mold and so um i guess the medical application of penicillin it's like so producing that mass antibiotic saved many lives um and yes yeah, used to combat infection by common bacteria um, yeah. and today we still use that 
um, which is pretty exciting to know that things that were invented quite a long time ago are still useful today. Yeah, yeah. well, that's a bit of a controversial one, penicillin, because uh, Fleming uh, discovered that in, in Scotland uh, many years before Howard Florey isolated it um, in Australia, but Florey was the one that kind of really found the, the real medical application for it and, and how it could actually be used to help people. So I, I think we can claim that as an Aussie invention. I think it's it's appropriately Aussie. Yeah, I think, I think that the official kind of definition is the medical application of penicillin, right. not penicillin. Not pen- so yeah. I think that's where we clarify so that we, as Australians, we don't like to step on people's toes. I think that kind of <laughs> covers all of our bases yeah. Yeah. at the moment, um, which is pretty exciting. So another one um, back in 1976 was the ultrasound scanner. So um, that was actually developed at CSIRO's Ultrasonic Research Centre. So they've discovered a way to differentiate ultrasound echoes bouncing off soft tissue in the body and converting them into a TV image. So this discovery forever changed the prenatal care um, as it gave expecting parents a window um, into the fetus without that X-ray exposure. Yeah. Yeah, now ultrasounds are pretty amazing and now they're not just used for, for pregnant women or not pregnant men either but <laughs> <laughs> they're not just used not for pregnant women me. anymore though they're actually used for, you know seeing a whole lot more inside the body too which is just fantastic to be able to get that uh as well as um being able to see inside without x-ray being able to see that live feed and the, the movement in there it's just amazing yeah it's pretty uh, cool yeah so i remember seeing that little brother um when he was in mum's tummy on ultrasound and that was just cool it's like there's a little baby moving in there crazy uh, awesome <laughs> yeah and it's it's yeah it's really good um let's see what else have we got here um the electronic pacemaker so back in 1926 mark lidwell uh, made an impromptu pacemaker at sydney's crown street women's hospital because there was a newborn patient suffering from heart problems. So he connected the baby's heart to electrodes, which stimulated the heartbeat with electric pulses. So um, there was a, a few ethical issues related to <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> this like invention. It. So it was just off the cuff, just, it's not working, let's get some electricity in there. Dr Nick style on The Simpsons, I think. Yeah. We need some electricity, <laughs> stat, you know. Um, so concerning. Yeah, yeah, so he's, um, he declined recognition and patents and things. Um, for this invention that saved many people around the world. But um, I think since then there's been a lot of ethical kind of debate and and information and going through the processes. So that now it's a proper safe and we actually have um, other kinds of pacemakers available. So I don't know, I don't think they were necessarily invented in Australia, those the new pacemakers the, yeah, okay. that we have, but the very original kind of idea of the spark. Yeah, we need some. We need some electricity. Stat yeah. came from Australia, so I think that ties in really well to um, Australians are pretty much known as being uh, kind of backyard inventors. There's a lot of people who have just made some stuff themselves, and um, kind of known as being ingenious Australia. So a lot of the time, um, inventions for us, I think, stem from from a use or a need. So things like the surf life saving reel, um, pedal powered radio that was initially used in um, in planes for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, things like notepads, the Hills Hoist. I mean, Australia really is a nation yeah. of, of inventors. But the, the stump jump plough and the, the Victor lawnmower come to mind as well. Yeah. You know, just things we need. Yeah, things, <laughs> we, we need that and we don't have it. Let's build it ourselves, yeah, which exactly. I, I think is pretty awesome. So last but not least, um, in the medical field, we have um, something that's really helped a lot of people 
to hear and actually luckily I'm sure a lot of Canberra listeners at the moment can hear us and I think there's a lot of people this new invention has made it possible for those who can't hear to actually hear and that's the cochlear implant so that was in 1978 Graham Clark um, tested the the bionic ear and so the cochlear implants are devices that are implanted into the head to electronically stimulate the auditory nerve so yeah yeah, no, they're pretty amazing things, um, the cochlear implant. And I actually found a story uh, out this week uh, from uh, researchers at the University of New South Wales who are still working with uh, the cochlear implant to make it even better uh, because the implant uh, works uh, by helping um, uh, translate sound into sort of nerve impulses coming through because hearing loss uh, generally occurs... Um, in the ear where there are tiny hair cells uh, and these hair cells uh, in the cochlea um, translate sound to nerve impulses which then go into our brain um, and that's the cochlea that's normally in our ear Uh, but when these hair cells are lost due to exposure to loud noises or ageing or other factors um, cochlear implants uh, can come in and play the part of those missing hair cells and so they can send the electronic impulses instead uh, to the auditory nerves in the brain and uh, help make that connection in there uh, so that uh, people can still hear Uh, but I mean and the the implants are just amazing to give people who've never heard before that that option to hear or people who've lost their hearing to be able to hear again Uh, but the, the important thing to note is that the implants aren't perfect yet um a lot of people who have them while they can hear um have uh struggle to be able to distinguish different musical pitches uh and also have trouble hearing conversations in a very noisy room uh and so that's um you know that's obviously a limitation of the cochlear implant uh but researchers uh now from the university of new south wales are trying to uh implement a better connection between the implant and the auditory nerves uh, to improve that sort of hearing Uh, and so what they're doing is they're um, trying to they're injecting a protein uh, into the uh, uh, bionic ear that's uh, that they're hoping will get taken up by the cells in the cochlea um, and and what they've found is uh, using guinea pigs and they they're actually using guinea pigs the animal that's not a uh, figure of speech using guinea pigs they've injected this protein uh, into the ear that encourages nerve growth and they found that the DNA was taken up by the cells and after two weeks the nerves had grown significantly towards the electrodes uh, and so when the guinea pigs hearing was tested they found that animals that were once completely deaf had their hearing restored to almost normal levels which is uh, pretty amazing uh, that you know just with this this invention uh, this invention this injection of uh, a protein for nerve growth it, it's helping make the the cochlear implant uh, even better because uh, you know the implants themselves haven't actually changed much since the 1970s since they were first introduced um, and I suppose that kind of makes sense because, you know, once you've got that basic happening of, of the, the sound being converted into impulses, there's not much more to it than that. Um, but now with the developments that scientists have made in, in gene therapy and working with DNA, um, they reckon this could change things completely uh, for people with hearing loss. Uh, you know, it's, it's only going to take 
add a few minutes to the whole implant procedure where they deliver the, the DNA material into the same area uh, with the surgeon who installs the device injecting a DNA solution into the cochlea and then firing electrical impulses to trigger the DNA transfer once the implant's inserted. Uh, so it's pretty amazing. Um, and I kind of like it because it's it's like the you're forcing your body to to take on the the electrical addition and 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 try and merge them together better to become one which is really cool uh and and the the other cool side of it is that gene therapy combined with bionic devices uh, could also be used as a treatment for neurological conditions such as parkinson's too um so there's some applications in many other areas there which is pretty awesome, I reckon. Yeah, I think we, we hear of things like bionic, like the word bionic, and it kind of scares us a little because we picture <laughs> robots and we picture, you know, taking over the world and things like that. But it's, it's nice to hear it in a context that's comforting and, and just improving things rather than, you know, scary yeah. things that we don't know. Yeah, you know? Well, actually, last National Science Week, Fuzzy ran a, we ran a panel on um, the bionic humans and, and what makes us human, and that got prompted out of one of our fuzzy presenters who has um, uh, hearing issues and now has hearing aids and works a lot with the, um, the deaf community, uh, or hearing impaired community, rather, um, and yeah just talking about you know bionic and, and what it actually means and, and whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing and the ethics behind that but I think yeah you're right a lot of it is really awesome stuff that's you know just helping us to be able to do those everyday things yeah uh, awesome well I've got one more uh, Australian scientist story that I wanted to share before we go to another song um and this one came from right here in Canberra at the Australian National University uh where scientists have invented a really simple and cheap way to make a high-powered lens that can make turn your smartphone into a high-resolution microscope. Uh, now, I, I, know, I know I've seen a few uh, links on the internet to how to turn your smartphone into a microscope and uh, do it for, like, less than 10 bucks or something like that, which is cool. But this invention by these guys can do it for one cent. That's literally how much these new lens cost. Uh, I love it because uh, we were talking about the backyard inventor before, and I think when you talk about backyard inventors, you think about things happening by accident, um, and that's how these lenses were developed. They were made by accident uh, by uh, researchers at the ANU, uh, and they nearly threw them away to start with, uh, but then uh, one of the researchers, Dr Lee, um, said that uh, Dr Steve Lee from the ANU was talking to his colleague uh, Dr Tri Fan at Sydney's Garvin Institute of Medical Research and uh, and he was talking about it. He's like, hold on, they'd actually be really good. They'd, they'd be really useful. We should look at these things. Um, and so then they started trying to develop them to find an optimal shape. Uh, what they were doing was they were getting uh, a polymer called polydimethyl siloxane, or PDMS, um, which is the same polymer that's used to make contact lenses, uh, and uh, which means it doesn't break or scratch. Um, and what they were doing was they were putting a drop of it onto a cover slip from a microscope and then inverting it, so flipping it upside down, and then letting gravity do the work to help the drop form a nice curve and uh, then they'd slowly add a small 
small amounts of fluid to the droplet uh, until they got the right shape they wanted, and they found that it gives them a magnifying power of up to 160 times with an imaging resolution of 4 micrometers, which is pretty amazing um, and uh, really useful uh, because what they've now developed along with that is uh, a lightweight 3D printable frame to hold the lens along with a couple of miniature LED lights for illumination and a coin battery and all this together uh, can turn smartphones into microscopes and means that it has a huge range of potential uses especially if it's put with the right apps on a smartphone Uh, so looking at um, image analysis and that sort of thing in the third world uh, where it could be used for practicing medicine uh, out in the field um, other areas that it could also be used is for farming too where farmers can photograph fungus or insects on their crops and upload the pictures to the internet where a specialist can identify if they're a problem or not um, there's there's some huge applications and it's already attracted interest from a German group uh, looking at using disposable lenses for teledermatology or looking at skin um, for that side of things. So just, you know, a little bit of a, a mistake in the lab that was going to be thrown away is suddenly uh, transforming a smartphone into a microscope, which is pretty awesome, I reckon. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. I think that actually happens a lot in science. Um, I think it's portrayed as this perfect process where scientists start out with a question and then they do steps A, B, C, and then, oh, fabulously, the answer is D, how, how great it all fits together with a nice little bow. But... That's not actually what really happens in the lab, and that's why inventions take so long. It's it's kind of like a, a question, test, and guess, and then you question, guess, test, and then you go back and you see and you try again and again and try, what if I change this and what if I change that? And so, yeah, I think it's important for the public to see that not everything is perfectly planned, but it just, yeah, some amazing things have come out of, wow, that's funny. And actually, I think there was a saying by someone quite famous a long time ago, I can't remember who, but it wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't. It was um, the answer to science isn't Eureka. I found it, but it's like, hmm, that's funny, and yeah. then it turns out to be yeah, something really. That's right. Well, really no, I think different. that's why those Eureka moments are so amazing because they are so rare. Because there's a whole lot of going through and going, oh, that doesn't work. Oh, but what's going on there? What's happening? What's happening? And eventually, you come to that Eureka. Very interesting indeed. Well, I think it's time for another bit of music. Uh, but before I do, I'm going to point out our Facebook page. If you haven't jumped onto it, have a look on the Fuzzy Logic Facebook page uh, because I posted a picture last night of a strange little creature and I want you to have a look and see if you can work out what it is on there. And then after the song, I'm going to tell you what it is. And I'm also going to tell you what the uh, a hoaxer on the internet tried to say it was instead. Uh, I will give you a clue. We're talking about Australia New Zealand Science Day, so it might have something to do with Australia. Whenever I... Fall at your feet by Boy and Bear there, but originally written by the Finn Brothers for Crowded House. Fantastic Aussie-Kiwi mix, and that's what we're all about here today on Fuzzy Logic. We're talking about Aussie and Kiwi science in line with Anzac Day, and the time's 20 past 12, which means we've got about 10 minutes to go. And uh, I wanted to talk briefly about a photo... I posted on Facebook earlier, uh, or last night, in fact, um, 
of a strange-looking creature, uh, which is actually a baby kangaroo. Now, it looks very cute because it's got its pink skin and you can kind of see the tail coming up and its legs with the claws and that sort of thing. Uh, But it was posted on the internet on a hoax news site called NewsHound uh, where people were claiming that British scientists had successfully cloned a dinosaur. Uh, In fact, an Apatosaurus. Um... And that was the the picture of it there, claiming to be the uh, baby dinosaur, nicknamed Spot, uh, which was currently being incubated at the university's College of Veterinary Medicine, um, which was a, an interesting hoax, and a lot of people actually fell for it on the the site, um, including. Uh, People, you know, people were tweeting things like, "Dear Lord, Jurassic Park was apparently just a precursor to reality." British scientists cloned a dinosaur. Now, this is some awesome science. Uh, or people asking themselves, "Can anyone actually validate this dinosaur cloning article?" My inner self-doubt is yelling at me, um, which is fair enough because it was a completely made-up thing. Uh, but they did have some good science behind it, supposedly talking about scientists extracting DNA from preserved Apatosaurus fossils, which were on display at the university's Museum of Natural Sciences. And once the DNA was harvested, scientists injected it into a fertile ostrich womb. Um, Which is actually reasonably... I I think that's reasonably sound, because ostriches, of course, being birds, and birds being quite closely related to dinosaurs, I think that fits quite nicely. Um, But just a bit of a hoax there, with that poor little Aussie kangaroo being... trying to... being made a dinosaur, even though he's got no control over it whatsoever. Poor thing. Anyway, let's get back to some of the Australian-New Zealand science that's happening. Uh, And, uh, look, as well as Australians uh, being fantastic inventors, the first Australians uh, had a lot of different innovations uh, throughout their time in Australia uh, before and after white settlement came. And, uh, Jess, you've got a few of the uh, Indigenous inventions to share. Yeah, there's a couple here. So, um, starting off with the boomerang. Um, so it's actually really interesting. I'm sure a lot of people have seen one before. They're kind of slightly curved. And it's actually profiled on a bird's wing, which means that the upper surface is greater than the underneath. And so it's this difference in pressure which generates lift when it's thrown into the air, which makes it an, an amazing hunting tool and, and things like that. Um, and that segues nicely into um, the woomera, which is another kind of hunting tool, which is a spear thrower. So up until the... Um, self-loading rifle in the 1800s it was actually the fastest weapon in the world wow which is yeah pretty exciting yeah because a woomer is kind of like a, a cradle for the spear isn't it and, yeah. and and then i think i think and i i'm uh i used one actually up at cairns at a, an indigenous uh, experience center up there where you you kind of cradle the spear into it and then flick it forwards as though you're, you're throwing a um uh, like you're using a lacrosse stick or something like that to throw it, and uh, and it flies the spear. Now I can't say I was very fast or very good with it, but they had some indigenous people there doing it, and they were just amazing. Like throwing this spear long distances quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty fantastic actually. And there's another. Um, so they're kind of more the hunting, the hunting things, but um, also a lot of people would have heard of the didgeridoo. Um, which is really uniquely Australian, and that's a wind instrument, uh, which is made from a eucalyptus branch. So um, they used to bury that near a termite mound, and so that would make it um, the long and hollow piece of wood that they need, yeah, yeah. to make that didgeridoo. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, actually, I had someone... Uh, I remember talking about that. This was another place. But someone asked the question of, you know, when the termites chew through it, why do they chew through the middle and not, you know, chew through the whole piece of wood? And the guy was like, well, they're used to being in trees. And so if they're chewing through trees, they're not going to chew through the branch because then they'll fall out the bottom. So they just chew through the middle, and hence you get your hollow tube. Oh, that's I don't true. know if that's true or not, but I like the thinking that's interesting. behind yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I would have thought maybe the wood's softer in the centre, or maybe... Possibly. yeah. Yeah, but I never thought about the termites being smart enough to go, I'm going to fall out if I chew around the outside yeah. of this. So there you go. So that's quite interesting. Um, and last but not least, one of kind of the pioneers, um, Australia's Leonardo even... Um, is David Unite? DiCaprio? No. <laughs> uh, da Vinci. Yes. Right. Yes. yes. Um, well, maybe a mixture of the two. Um, so, um, is David Uniapon for his promotion of scientific ideas. Um, he's actually commemorated on our $50 note. And so he was really heavily involved in science and literature and um, really interested in improving the conditions for Aboriginal people. So... Um, he had a lot, a number of different inventions. So these included things like um, a hand pe- an improved handpiece for sheep shearing, the centrifugal motor, um, yeah, lots of different things, a mechanical propulsion device. Yeah, so he was really heavily involved in, quite well known as one of Australia's, I guess, leading inventors in that time. Yeah, he's a pretty amazing man, some of the stuff he developed. Um, all right, I think we've got time for one more story, and I couldn't go past this one out of Kiwiland uh, just because of the picture that came with it. Uh, and it's uh, all about a robotic rover that uh, they've developed over there for agricultural work. Um, but it's it's been inspired by NASA's Mars rover project, uh, and so what they've got is this little rover, which looks quite a lot like the Curiosity rover, except this one's out in a field with cows, um, and agricultural researchers at Palmerston North and Lincoln in New Zealand have been... Uh, developing this paddock robot which they've nicknamed agri rover um it's designed to be a fully autonomous rover that will automatically undertake uh multiple tasks around farms both day and night uh and so what they've got is uh it's an all-weather rover uh, that deploys from a central base station and independently navigates to a paddock goes under wire fences and gates and progressively traverses the paddock while taking measurements and treating patches uh then automatically returns to the base station for recharging and further deployment and it's designed to work in all weather all of the time going about its tasks without creating extra jobs for the farmers uh and it's designed to be easy to operate reporting results as needed to a cell phone or computer uh which is pretty cool i reckon um you know it's a rover that's been developed to operate successfully under farm conditions uh they're also looking at um what other stuff they can measure uh, in in real time with the rover, uh, such as soil properties for precision fertiliser application, uh, mapping compaction zones or creating soil maps, uh, and also testing systems to automatically treat pasture and fresh cow urine at the patch scale. so by pro- programming the rover to drive over every square foot of a paddock, it could be useful for identification and treatment of individual urine patches and uh, selective identification and treatment of individual weeds, uh, <laughs> because, which is quite cool. Um, 
But to be honest, I just love the, the picture of the little thing, this little Mars rover that's going around New Zealand fields. Um, and I, I love this quote at the end from the scientists who found who say that it's tough as well. Uh, we accidentally dropped it off the back of a ute and it's fell on its lid. We just turned it over and away it went again. <laughs> That's so. I feel like that's even though it's in New Zealand, that's so Australian. Well, it's, be it's, like, I think it's she'll the, be right, the, mate. The Aussie Kiwi way, isn't it? Just oh, it's fine. It's she'll all good. Be, just she'll be flip right. it over and it's all good. I love so. it. I get this. Um, I get this image of you know those um infomercials you see of those little vacuums that travel your home while <laughs> the you. Roomba, yeah. Yes, yeah. Vacuum every square inch of your home while you sleep. Like I, I feel like it's that, but on a kind of like an outback style rugged kind of yeah most definitely yeah that. i think it's uh it's an interesting little application i'm sure um with the, all the farming applications we might be seeing them out here in australia sometime soon too these little rovers roving around our paddocks uh with uh, you know new robotic farmers definitely <laughs> anyway that just about wraps it up for today here on fuzzy logic uh we've had a fantastic time talking about australia new zealand science and i hope you've enjoyed listening to us talk about it too uh if you do want to tune into more episodes check out our podcast just type fuzzy logic into itunes or you can head to fuzzy logic on 2xx.podbean.com uh i have to upload the podcast today and i probably have to do last week's too because that's not up there yet but i'll put them both up there so you can have a listen to some more fuzzy logic well, thanks very much for joining me in the studio today, Jess. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. And you brought a fantastic list of Aussie and Kiwi inventions for us. That's great. And uh, I hope our listeners got some uh, new inventions out there. And maybe we'll hear of some more backyard inventions coming up soon uh, from more Australian inventors. But thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. All right. So well, that wraps it up for another week here on Fuzzy Logic. Tune in next week for some more science on a Sunday. Uh, but for now, we've got Beyond Zero.